0: We're going to get into a Bible study. for the second week. We're taking a time out on Exodus because I don't want to miss an opportunity that we have tonight. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 and then going over into chapter 2. And there's a reason for this because this is a chapter, of course, that deals with sin and walking in the light. What is today? Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. You should have a, a three-page document I gave you tonight. Did everybody get one? Everybody got one? Okay. You got one, Gavin? I do. I was just going to give them the Okay. Uh, You'll notice what Lent is from, the German referring to spring and the lengthening of days. Lent is observed for 40 days leading up to Easter. And it's in remembrance of Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. Now Sundays are generally not counted, which are like many Easters, each week celebrating the Resurrection, Uh, That's why if you start with Ash Wednesday today, count 40 days up to Easter, it won't work out right unless you ignore Sundays. Uh, In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they started this past Sunday, and they call it uh, Great Lent. And uh, anyway, so a different schedule. Uh, In addition to Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, the Bible has other examples of 40 days. Moses spending 40 days on Mount Sinai. Elijah spent 40 days and nights walking to Mount Horeb. God sent 40 days and nights of rain at Noah's flood. The Hebrew people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before entering the promised land. And Jonah prophesied that in 40 days, God would destroy the city of Nineveh. And so 40, this emphasis on this, we see repeatedly in Scripture. As I mentioned, today is the start of Lent. And uh, you may have seen somebody at work today, uh, participants. And and we're going to get around talking about Baptist in a minute and why we (coughs) traditionally don't celebrate the Lent season and what we can gain from it. But anyway... Uh, participants will put a smudge of ashes on their foreheads, oftentimes in the form of a cross, and it symbolizes sorrow for sin. Uh, The purpose of Ash Wednesday and Lent in most church traditions is to get people thinking about sin and to deal with sin and repentance in their lives as they go up to Easter so that by the time Uh, Good Friday comes around, and Easter Sunday, the person is spiritually prepared, has spent more than just a day or two or a few minutes preparing their hearts for the Easter season. Uh, During Lent, the penitential psalms are often read. I've listed those for you. Uh, Three practices are emphasized during Lent. And all of these are supposed to be increased, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Uh, Depending on what people do, a vice that they give up or something they do, a charitable deed or whatever, this is referred to as one's Lenten sacrifice, okay? Okay? Also, it's a 40-day period where many Christians concentrate in a more focused fashion on the reading of Scripture and drawing closer to the Lord through spiritual disciplines. As part of adding and subtracting in this manner, participants may give up social media for these 40 days. Yay! Please do that. Please do that. Uh, Television, movies... Uh, And at the same time, using that time you would spend on social media, uh, it's said today that adults, even on the job, are spending 20 minutes of every single hour on their social media. Uh, 20 minutes of every single hour. Um, So anyway... Think about something like that, and I would encourage you on the positive side of adding, uh, between now and Easter, read through the New Testament. Seriously, read through the New Testament. Uh, Fat Tuesday yesterday, French Mardi Gras, uh, was a last chance party and feast before Ash Wednesday uh, begins. It's a time when many would eat pancakes because pancakes were a chance to get rid of butter and eggs and milk and other dairy products. Now, uh, moving on, you'll see the in bold there. Why have Baptist, Reformed churches, and many evangelical groups typically not observed Lent? First, Baptists believe in the autonomy of the local church and reject a centralized official church authority mandating a practice. Secondly. Baptists have emphasized the priesthood of the individual believer, shying away from mandated uh, corporate practices that are not clearly outlined in Scripture. Uh, For Baptists, as point two suggests, the Bible is our guide for faith and practice, while remorse for sin that leads to repentance is certainly a biblical principle, as is fasting. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find Lent or Ash Wednesday being promoted. Some of the practices that have been associated with Lent, such as food groups of what you can and cannot eat on certain days, become so restrictive without any scriptural merit. In fact, Colossians 2 cautions against those who put such restrictions on certain foods and days. Fourth, Baptists and other evangelicals believe that repentance over sin is to be an ongoing practice of the Christian And not simply emphasized during a 40-day period. Fifth, during Lent, many professing Christians, as I've already indicated, will give up something. They'll fast from something like ice cream or chocolate or chewing gum or red meat. And, you know, that kind of tends to make it trite, doesn't it? It's hard to see how giving up ice cream or chewing gum is denying yourself and picking up your cross and following Jesus. Uh, What I put there, we don't believe that laying off of your juicy fruit is exactly what Jesus had in mind by denying yourself. Uh, Matthew 6, Jesus cautioned against doing our acts of righteousness before others to be seen by men. Uh, Seventh, reformers like Zwingli came out in strong opposition to Lent, distancing himself and other reformers from many of the traditions of sacramentalists. To them, such things as the practice of Lent seem to emphasize meritorious acts versus the faith alone principle of the Reformation. Now, notice these two closing paragraphs. If done in the right spirit, privately before God and truly using the season to focus in on sin and the need for repentance and the necessity of the cross, there's nothing wrong or sinful about observing the practice yourself. Some Christians find certain observances on the Christian calendar to be aids in worship, much like an order of worship in a Sunday church bulletin would be. However, to Zwingli's point, observances like Lent should in no way make the worshiper believe there's anything saving or meriting of salvation in the practice. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Perhaps as Baptists, we need to understand And practice a moderating position. In other words, while not practicing Lent in the way that some do for the reasons just given, at the same time, we need to realize the value in setting aside a prolonged period leading up to Easter where we do, in fact, concentrate in a focused way on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and our own taking up of one's cross in discipleship and mission. Whereas we certainly don't want to arrive at a place where we only think of these matters around a date on the calendar each year, yet if we don't have some type of disciplined time to renew our focus, we may find ourselves ignoring these opportunities altogether. Or we may find that even if we do give greater attention to spiritual disciplines, the time is so abbreviated that we hurry back to normal routines in life and miss what the Lord may have impressed upon us. That is the danger today in such fast-paced lives. Thus, a prolonged period like the Lenten season is a reminder to slow down and pull away from normal activities and schedules. So folks, take 40 days. Again, read through your New Testament. Give up social media for 40 days. Something else that's that where you can use that time Where you can use that time for prayer and Bible study and spiritual disciplines. And you know what? I think if we do that, come Good Friday and Easter Sunday, your heart's going to be more prepared for worship at Easter. Right? You know, we, we think of doing this for a day or two. The week of Easter but the Lord may be wanting to speak to us and he's he's not on this microwave oven pace <laughs> you know we want to do everything drive-through or microwave and the microwave's too slow right there's value in a prolonged period of preparing your hearts uh, some in here I know, like maybe Jeff and Drew and Mary Ellen, came out of churches where you did observe corporately Lent. Any thoughts? Um, that's part of it. That's <laughs> part of it, yes. They had been and were excited mm-hmm. about it, and they kept repeating their own recommitment and the need for repentance. And they were actually witnessing, mm. and it was not in the context of, of we got to do this, it was more of this is a volunteer heart thing. Okay, and it was very impressive. Good, I was, I was surprised. Who worst was saying that. Very good, <laughs> and who wasn't. Kim? Well, Scott, what good possible about Lynn? I mm-hmm. do appreciate all the fast food restaurants bringing out fish sandwiches. Bojangles has a real good one, <laughs> and uh, so I can eat okay. two fish uh, in my diet. Okay. Okay. So. Okay. Think about that. That's a good thing about <laughs> it. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, I can stop printing calendars with fish sandwiches on Friday. Yeah. Know. Okay, find First John. The disciples walk. First John, we're going to begin in verse 5 of chapter 1. 1 John 1, verse 5. 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin... We're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to Him, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness or wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that His Word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Now, you've no doubt heard the troubling statement before <laughs> that goes like this. It doesn't matter what I believe as long as I am Sincere. Yeah. Seems to be a favorite statement of people today. Others say, just choose your own path, your own way, and be sincere, be true to yourself. How about being true to the Lord? We know these are false statements. You can believe something all day long, and if it's a lie it's not going to make a lie come true just because you sincerely believe a lie. As I've told you before, the object of our faith has got to be worthy of our faith. Take, for instance, somebody who's pulling a trailer, a heavy trailer, down a mountain and believes that the brakes on his truck are okay even though he questions it. And he ends up having an accident. Maybe even ends up losing his life. He believed the brakes were okay, but the brakes were not worthy of his faith. The object of your faith has to be worthy of your faith. And there's only one who can fill that bill. John is concerned that his flock... (laughs) does not exercise faith in the faulty messages that they're hearing John's congregation is being bombarded by the Gnostics Now you may not be that acquainted with the Gnostics it was it was Greek philosophy Greek certain Greek not all Greek philosophy but a certain branch of it and there were there were different Forks in the road of the Gnostics. Not all Gnostics believe the same. But one group of Gnostics believed that Jesus had not come in the flesh. That what you were seeing was a phantom or ghost. And therefore, Jesus didn't really die on the cross for sins. Another group said, well... Uh, The Christ came upon the man Jesus at his baptism and then the Christ lifted off of him while he was on the cross so the Messiah did not die. Heretical groups as you can see. Uh, Another branch of the Gnostics since they denied flesh and material things, Uh, one group said, it doesn't matter what you do with your flesh. As long as you're giving attention to your spirit, you can do anything you want to with your flesh because your body doesn't matter. So these are some of the things that John was dealing with as as he wrote this letter. He wants them to know that the gospel they received from the apostles is true. And they shouldn't drift from it. They need to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so as John begins in chapter 1, he's basically saying to his congregation, look himself and the other apostles, we saw Jesus with our own eyes. We handled him. We touched him. He's real. He wasn't just a ghost. He wasn't just a phantom. John wants them to understand the nature of God, that Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully man, who came in the flesh and died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead, a bodily resurrection from the the dead. And so John wants them to understand that aspect of the nature of God and likewise to understand the nature of sin. He wants them to be free. God's truth sets you free free. Sin brings bondage but God's truth brings freedom. First thing I want you to notice is what he says about the character of God. The character of God. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. God is light meaning that he is pure, he's holy, he's just. Think of the times in the Old Testament that we've already seen light being used in association with God. The burning bush that Moses saw, right? The burning bush. The fire by night. The golden lampstand in the tabernacle. And then Psalm 104 verse 2 says, God wraps himself in light. You go back to the Ten Commandments. God says, I'm the Lord your God. You're to have no other gods before me. I'm a jealous God. The psalmist says, God is my light and my salvation. Habakkuk one thirteen says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. James says in the New Testament, when you're tempted, let no man say, I'm being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt any man. No sin in God. None. God's never had a bad thought. Have you ever had a bad thought? God's never even had a bad thought. God has never spoken a misplaced word. God is light. And John says, in him is no darkness at all. Now I believe belabor this. a a little bit because people in the world today will say now why would God have let such and such happen? And it's almost like they're bringing a charge of wrongdoing against God. If God would have done right He wouldn't have let such and such happen. God doesn't do wrong. God is Light, And in him is no darkness at all. Everything God does is holy and just and right. Notice where John begins. He begins with God. Folks, if we're going to understand the world and even our own lives properly, we don't start with man, we start with God. A proper understanding of God. And this is what the Bible does everywhere. Back in Genesis 1, it starts with God. You don't start with man first. We need to understand who God is and what he's like. God is light and no darkness at all in him. So John is emphasizing God's character and only then does he move on to cover the second point, the condition of man. Verses 6 and 7. John sets up two different scenarios here. Here's the first scenario. One who professes fellowship. We're going to talk about one who possesses fellowship. But first, one who professes fellowship. Here's a man who simply claims to have fellowship with God. He claims that he knows God and he's been put into a right relationship with God. Now, folks, professions of faith are very important, right? The New Testament tells us that. We need to confess Jesus as Lord. Professions are important, but Christianity is more than just profession. Somebody's walk can invalidate their talk. We see it all the time. Our walk can reveal that we're not very serious about what we say. Now what's he just said about God? God's light. There's no darkness in him at all. Who moves into our heart at conversion? The Holy Spirit does. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.13 that at conversion, the Holy Spirit is the seal on our lives. We are baptized and sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That happens at conversion. And again, God's light, no darkness in him at all. And so here's a guy who says, I'm saved. And I walk in fellowship with God. And I'm indwelt by God's spirit. And then look at the way this guy lives. He lives in sin. He walks in darkness. And in the Greek text, the tense is significant. John is talking about somebody who as a way of life walks in darkness. Habitually, lifestyle. He's not talking about somebody who, uh uh-oh, messes up in something. No, he's talking about somebody who says with his lips, I know God, and then lives like the world. What's darkness? Well, in the New Testament, it can be the deeds of the flesh or the ways of the world. Interchangeable. You can read Romans 13 about this, Colossians 3, Galatians 5, the deeds of darkness, the deeds of the flesh. And so here's a guy living according to the world and the desires of the flesh and the whole time saying, I'm a Christian and I know God and I have fellowship with God. But he does not practice the truth. What's the verdict? What's John say? Don't you you wish John would be plain and say what he means? He beats around the bush, doesn't he? What's John say about this guy? What is he? He is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Folks, everybody you read about in the New Testament who was converted, their lives were changed. Zacchaeus, think about Zacchaeus and the evidence of change in him. Think about James and John who forsook their father's business in nets to follow Jesus. How about Matthew, who got up from the tax collector's booth, left all of that behind to follow Jesus? Who's the most famous case we think of? The Apostle Paul, right? On and on we could go. All of these people in the Bible that showed they were changed. They became followers of Christ and there was an alteration in their life. It's not that it's just something they said with their lips and then went out of church and lived the way they had always lived their lives. No, they were different. They were changed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. One of the assurances of salvation that the Bible gives us is we're able to think about our lives when we were saved and we can see life change that occurred. If there was no life change... As Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, you need to examine yourselves to make sure you're really in the faith or not. Because where there is regeneration, where there is conversion, there is life change. If there's no life change, then regeneration did not take place. Now, one who not only professes, but then he talks secondly about one who possesses fellowship he goes on to say if we walk in the light as he's in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin again he's not talking about perfection because he's going to talk in just a moment about sin And how the person who says he doesn't sin anymore, how that person is a liar too. But again, he's talking about the one who has a way of life, does have a new lifestyle. He says he has fellowship with God, and he lives like, yes, he does have fellowship with God. Thirdly, I want you to see the confession of sin. Verse 8, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So now he's talking about various attitudes to sin. And John sets up three different scenarios here. John loves to do that in his letter. Set up different scenarios. Scenario number one, the proud man. Verse 8, I'm not a sinner. There's no sin in my life to confess. Here's a guy who thinks he's reached some sort of sinless perfection. It's kind of like the guy who stood up in church and made that profession of faith. And his wife grabbed him and said, sit down and shut up. Remember, I'm here with you. (laughs) And I can tell him the truth. If you think you've reached some kind of plateau in your life where sin is not even a factor anymore in your life, then I want to talk to your spouse afterwards. Folks, here's where we fail to see something of the true nature of sin. Sin is not just sins of commission doing wrong. But sin is also what? Sins of omission. You can be walking in fellowship with God. Be driving down the road. God may lay on your heart to pull over somewhere and talk to somebody. But you're in a hurry. You move on. Well, you've sinned. If God was really laying on your heart, stop and talk to that person. Can you say even as a Christian that you have perfectly obeyed the will of God? That you've perfectly done the will of God? That you have perfectly glorified Him in all you say and do and think? Can you say you do? No. now, this doesn't mean that we say, well, since I'm going to sin anyway, i just go ahead and jump into it, right? Because Paul says in Romans 6, God forbid that we should live that way. <clears> that since we're going to sin anyway, we just leap into it and love it. God forbid that we should give up the war just because we might lose a few battles every now and then. A Christian, though, is somebody who is always to be growing in his or her Christ-likeness. But there's always that humble recognition that you have feet of clay. You've not reached sinless perfection. And you want this side of heaven. Second scenario, the cleansed man. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, confession means what? That we have the same attitude about our sin that God does. We agree with God. Confession doesn't mean, oh, I'm sorry, God, about such and such, and then you just go out and do it again. Confession carries the idea that you agree with God over that sin and along with agreeing with God over that sin, you repent of it. It includes repentance. That's confession. And what does he say God God is? God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He will be true to his character. He is a redeeming God. But again, verse 9 is not a license to sin. I, I've told you guys before on Sunday morning about when I worked at Harris Teeter at Cotswold. I grew up in the Cotswold area in Charlotte. And the stock crew uh, would work all night, and there were a couple of guys on the stock crew, a guy my age or maybe a year or two younger, and an older guy. And these were rough neck guys. And even the older one, I mean, he he was a rough dude. But he knew what the young guy was telling him wasn't right. They they had gotten in a discussion in the back room, and the older guy said, Scott, you come here, you can tell... Tell, straighten this guy out, because that younger guy had the idea, and I'm not trying to pick on Catholics here, but he had the idea that he could live any way he wanted to, and on Friday nights go to confession and mass, and and hey, then he could leave the confessional booth and go out and do anything he wanted to do again, and just go the next week in the confessional booth, and the old guy Who, again, didn't even profess to be a believer, as far as I know, and certainly didn't live like it. Even that guy knew that what that younger guy was saying wasn't right. He had sense enough to know that wasn't right. And the older guy was saying, Dude, you're. Something's wrong with you if you think you're a Christian and forgiven of your sins just because you go to the confessional booth and. Can't wait to get out of the confessional boot to go right back to living your life of sin. First John 1 John 1.9 is not talking about presuming on the grace of God. Don't use First John 1 John 1.9 as a Christian rabbit foot. Again, you agree with God's attitude. Jesus told a parable illustrating this, didn't he? The Pharisee and the publican. And the publican who would not even look up to heaven but beat on his breast and said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now verse 10 gives us another scenario. And this is the worst one of all. Look at verse 10. If we claim we've not sinned, we're calling God a liar. Now what's he talking about here? Not only do I not sin, I've never sinned. Sin's never been an issue in my life. Now, why is that calling God a liar? Well, for one thing, the whole plan of redemption in the Bible presupposes what? We're sinners. We need forgiveness all through the Old Testament, the the sin sacrifices, the whole reason Jesus came to die on the cross And then Romans 3, what's Paul say in Romans 3? There is no one who is righteous, no, not even one. It's like Paul is, man, he's really driving at home in Romans 3. There is none who is righteous. There's no one who is righteous, no, not even one. God says we have sinned and come short of his glory. And that's the whole reason you see sacrifices in the Bible culminating in Christ. And so the guy who says, hey, there's no sin in my life. You're calling God a liar. But then John talks about the blessed man. Chapter 2. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin again that the lifestyle. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He's Jesus Christ, the one who's truly righteous. He's saying don't have a cavalier attitude to sin. Don't leap into sin and love it. Don't live in sin. A saved man is to desire now to live to the glory of God and with a new orientation in his life. The things that he once delighted in don't hold any affection for him any longer. But then John says, but if anyone does sin. Yes, you're a new creation in Christ if you're in Christ. And you're not to live in sin. But if you do find, you've sinned. What's he say? We have an advocate. Folks, just coming through the book of Genesis, we've seen that even the most righteous people in Genesis, they did fall into sin from time to time, right? Abraham, before Abraham, Noah, Jacob, So even those saints, and there's King David. Man after God's own heart. Look at what King David did. Simon Peter denied the Lord. So it's possible that a Christian will still sin from time to time, yes. But when we do, John wants us to know we have two things in Jesus. First of all, he's our advocate, paraclete. Is the word. One who comes alongside of us. The Bible refers to the Holy Spirit in the same terminology in John's gospel. Pericle. Pericleo. One who comes alongside. Called alongside of you to help. He's our advocate with the Father. Father this one's mine. And he's our propitiation. The means by which sins are forgiven. That word refers to an offering that satisfies the righteousness of God. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's our scapegoat. He's the one who covers our sin and takes away our sin. And not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. Now folks, when the New Testament says all or the whole world... What, what a, what a, how do we view that term? Every single person. Is every single person saved? No. When the New Testament uses all or whole, the biblical writers are talking about Jew and Gentile. All ethnicities. The whole world. Wherever there's forgiveness of sin. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Regardless of what tongue you speak, what language you speak, where there is forgiveness, it's because Jesus is the propitiation for your sins. And the early church had trouble with that one for a while, because they thought it was just for the Jew. And God had to teach them in the book of Acts. No, it, what Jesus did was, was for all, all peoples. So John wants them to live righteous, not with a cavalier attitude. But again, he wants them to understand when they do falter, they're not hopelessly lost. And so they don't need to grovel around in their misery and sin. Look at verses 3 and following. It goes on to say that the blessed man, the one who's a Christian has the assurance that he's a Christian, is the man or woman whose heart it is to live in obedience to Christ. He says, we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That's how we know that we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Again, life change. I've told you before of how one skeptic in church history, Reinhold Niebuhr, said to a group of Christians one time, if you want me to believe in your Redeemer, then you've got to look a little more redeemed. that's what John's saying. Where God has redeemed you, there's evidence of that redemption in your life. And if there's not, your profession is suspect. I simply want to ask you tonight, do things match up in your life? Do things match up between talk and and walk do you have a heart to obey God is there a desire in your heart for the things of God does sin grieve your heart the way it grieves God (laughs) basically John is asking us to examine ourselves to see if we're doers of the word Are we hearers only or are we hearers and doers who put it into practice? And again, as we get ready to lead up to Easter, I want to challenge you. Examine your life. Examine your walk with the Lord. If there's evidence of heart change and desire for the things of God, And love for the commands of God. And love for the people of God. And is there the proper attitude to sin? Examine yourselves as we lead up to Easter. Use this 40 days to do that. Now Richard, you were trying to make a comment a moment ago. I grew up in my neighborhood. Well, they, they they believe that he has periods where he speaks ex cathedra. That he can make statements that are co-equal with scripture. Yeah. I'm not aware that they still believe that the pope is sinless, but they believe that there are times that he's able to speak flawlessly and Anyway, ex-cathedra. So what you going to do leading up to Easter? Talk to me. What are you going to be doing? Hmm? Reading the New Testament? What else? examining yourself again, what what's really your attitude to sin and to the things of God and the people of God if you don't have time for the whole New Testament Romans oh absolutely that every Christian needs to read Romans regularly sure oh, well. absolutely absolutely Romans and Ephesians are twin mountain peaks in the New Testament, I tell you. I did Psalm 51 today, hmm. and it's about David's sin. Mm-hmm. And- And, and talking about David in Psalm 51, if, if you want to see what <coughs> sin does in the life of a believer, read, read Psalm 32 also. Because David talks in Psalm 32, I think I'm getting the number right, Psalm 32, that before Nathan confronted him, and before he dealt with the sin and confessed it and repented of it, he was the most miserable man on the face of the earth. I mean, his insides were about to explode. He was so miserable before God because he was bound up in sin that he had not dealt with. And But he talks about the release and the freedom when he finally got right with God. But man, Psalm 32 Describes what it ought to be like in the heart of a believer when we sin. That we grieve over it.